Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. Mari's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Evening, Mari. Good evening. I am so excited about our guest tonight. Look here, I have a book sitting in my hand that I finished this last week that was so compelling and so great. All of my listeners are going to have to read it. It's called Bush's Law, The Remaking of American Justice by Eric Lischblow. He is a winner of the Pulitzer Prize and a wonderful guest coming to us from Washington, D.C. But let me tell you a little bit about his background because it is impressive. Eric Lischbau is a New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who actually used to write for about 15 years for the LA Times right here in our area. He's also the author of this book called Bush's Law. Just months after September 11th, the Bush administration without court approved documents secretly authorized the National Security Agency to eavesdrop on Americans and others inside the US to search for terrorist activity. Lushbaugh's eye-opening reports have helped the public to make sense of this post-9-11 story that questions the reach of presidential powers and how the government must balance homeland security against the civil rights of Americans. For his work on the domestic spying scandal, Eric Lushbaugh is the recipient of a Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting and he's also a recipient, along with New York Times reporter James Risson, of the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting. Pulitzer jury applauded them for their carefully sounded stories on secret domestic eavesdropping that stirred a national debate on the boundary line between fighting terrorism and protecting civil liberty, which is a tremendous balancing act. Eric Lichbau has recently uncovered more governmental monitoring activities. The Swift story, which we're going to talk about tonight, in which counterterrorism officials access the banking transactions of thousands of Americans from an international database, and that's alarmed many people. 
and the government's departure from typical practice in how they acquire large amounts of sensitive financial data has stirred concerns about legal and many privacy issues. Eric covers federal law enforcement and national security issues for the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. Before coming to the Times, he worked for the Los Angeles Times here in California and Washington, and he focuses on investigative reporting, legal affairs, and law enforcement. He is a guest commentator on television, appearing frequently on CNN, CNBC's Hardball, PBS's NewsHour with Jim Lehrer, C-SPAN's Washington Journal. He has been on radio. He's been on TV. He does speeches across the country. And we are so fortunate to be able to have him join us tonight. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your taking your time out to spend some time with us tonight, Eric. Oh, thanks for having me. That's a, that's a very nice introduction. Well, you walk on water, and uh, you have done things, you know, in my opinion, as a lawyer, I, I always worry about freedom of the press. And, you know, when we heard about Judy Miller having to go to prison, California, we've got this shield law, which you don't have federally. So it's so important. I believe so much in, in the freedom of the press. So thank God that you're out there, and thank you for doing all the work that you've done. Well, th- thank you. No, and I, I agree completely uh, on the importance of, of the shield law. I got to use California shield law when I was a reporter at the LA Times, and I wish that we had one at the federal level. We'd all be uh, in a lot better shape. Now, hasn't there been some recent legislation that tried to introduce the shield law for the federal government? It there, there almost has been. passed, yeah. Yeah, it, it actually, the, the shield law has actually passed the, the House by an overwhelming veto-proof margin a few months back last year. Uh, I think it was the end of end of uh, 2007. And we're hoping to get a vote before the Senate. It's got its best shot at passage in, in years and years. Um, it's It's been opposed by the by the Bush administration, so it's certainly not a not a sure thing, but the chances are looking better than they have for a while of, of getting legal protections at the federal level. But hasn't he said that he would veto that? Is that a problem? <laughs> That's a problem, although the, the House vote was, was so overwhelming that it that it would override a veto, and, you know, depending on what the, the Senate vote was, it might not matter. Unless you want to wait until after the election. Right, <laughs> right. Well, Eric, you say in your book that the NSA launched its warrantless spy program way back in 2001, and yet it took four years for the program to become public. And it became public in your articles in the New York Times back in December 2005. From what I read in your book, you said you wanted to break that story back in October 2004 before the presidential election. What actually happened, and and why didn't the New York Times publish it until 13 months later? Well, the paper was under in- incredible pressure from the White House not to, to publish the story. Um, you know, Bill Keller, who, who um, was the editor of the paper at that time and still is the editor, um, said it, said that uh, he had never seen anything like it, uh, probably in, in the history of the paper, in terms of a really a full court press from the White House at the highest levels, in really pleading with the paper on national security grounds not to run the story, in essentially making the case that that lives would be lost if the, if the, if the uh, newspaper put what we knew in, in the paper. And while we thought there were, there were problems with, with that argument, uh, that's still an argument that's not going to be taken lightly by, uh, by any editor. And the, the editors felt in that first go-around in 2004 that they simply weren't comfortable running the story. And, and that story did not see the light of day, as, as you say, until, uh, until two, December 2005, another 13 months after it was originally drafted. 
So what changed? I mean, you talk about this in your book, but it, I want you to share that. And so people are going to have to read your book to find out all the nitty-gritty. But what changed in 2005? Sure. Um, a couple of things changed. Uh, one thing that I talk about in the book is, is that my partner in the story, Jim Risen, was at that point writing his own book and, and was thinking about uh, including in it the, the, at that point, untold story of the NSA program. And the fact that he was considering doing that led the paper to take a second look at the whole story and the question of whether or not it should run in, in the newspaper first. The editors agreed to revisit that whole topic. And I think that, it, that in that reexamination, the, the editors became more persuaded than they were the first time as to just how serious the legal concerns were about the program. You know, we had heard we had talked to people the, the first go-around in 2004 who were expressed the, the seriousness of those legal concerns, the question of whether or not the president had the authority to do what he did, about whether or not this, this circumvented the foreign intelligence law. But in the, um, in the second round of reporting, those concerns became you know, even clearer and even more dramatic. And I think that that is what ultimately tipped the scales uh, in favor of publication. So in those 13 months, you still had sources you were talking to who were giving you information that was actually building on that story of, of the concerns, right? Yes. I mean, there was a long hiatus in between there when, when really the story had just gone dark. But, but yeah, we were still picking up on things in between. I have to ask you, how did you get those sources? Well, there's, a, there's not a whole lot I can say on that because the, the FBI is, is still continuing to, to investigate that, right. that question. We, we have well, let's say hypothetically, how do people get, <laughs> to get yeah. those sources? Well, you know, I think there, there was what we were picking up on was a good deal of, good bit of uh, nervousness and alarm within certain circles of the administration about, about this program. At first, we weren't even sure what the program was, but the sense that, uh, that there was a real high anxiety level over over this mystery surveillance operation. And, um, you know, Jim had uh, great sources in, in the intelligence community. I had sources in, in the law enforcement and counterterrorism community. And, and together, we were able to put together a lot of the pieces of the puzzle. So you had some deep throats that were, <laughs> were talking to you? I, I, I guess you could call it that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, for, the, Hollywood, me. for the Hollywood version, yeah. Yeah, well, I remember when I was in college and all that came coming down with Woodward and Bernstein, and that's what i getting this feeling about this coming off again. I remember, and I'm going to tell you this story, you'll get a kick out of it, why it meant so much to me to read your book. Many years ago, I was elected to a school board, and I was the youngest one on the school board and the only one with a, a postgraduate degree. And there were a lot of things that were going on in that school board that were not legal, you know, violations of the Brown Act, just a lot of stuff that was shocking me. And so I was the lone person on the board that was worried about this. So I actually was like a deep throat <laughs> on my little tiny level and would speak to the media and, and give them little hints and say, you've got to investigate this. You've got to investigate oh, how these principals, oh, this is another one. There were principals at the high schools and the junior highs that were being visited by one of the school board members who was an insurance agent who tried to get them to buy insurance policies, which was totally a conflict of interest. And these principals would call me up because I had been a teacher and an administrator, and they go, Mari, this is what's happening. We're, like, pressured. So then I would try and do something about this and, again, leak this to the press for them to investigate 
And they did. <laughs> so I was, that's why I got so excited about your book, because I'm thinking, I did this on myself because I was terrified of what was going on in this little political arena. And so I was one of those who was the leaker, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Now well, we need more leakers. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think when someone gets into politics and they really feel strongly and they're trying to be honest, it is terrifying, especially when you see that the whole Constitution was literally being remade. Like, well, that gets to my next question, which is the name of your book is Bush's Law, the Remaking of American Justice. So what did you mean by the remaking of American justice? Well, you know, the, the thesis of the book, or at least one, one of them, is that you know, 9-11 set off a, a remarkable transformation in American, American government and the whole notion of, of justice that gave rise to this vision in the Bush administration of a robust um, executive authority of the kind that we have not seen before in, in modern history. And it was you know, virtually unchecked. The, the, the usual checks and balances from Congress and the courts were almost non-existent in those first few years. And this was a response to, obviously, a, a, a historic event at 9-11. And, you know, there were there were necessary steps that the that the administration took which i think all uh, which i think many people believed were urgent and necessary uh, to to um, respond to some of the failings of 9/11 there were other areas where the administration i think uh, i would argue through its secrecy and the lack of transparency and the the um, kind of unilateral nature of of its view of executive power really hurt itself and and could have accomplished many of the same things many of the same objectives had it had it simply been more willing to accommodate you know, working with Congress and working with the courts. Yeah, I mean, we were all terrified, and no one wanted to impede the government and Absolutely, the president yeah. from and from making us safe. You know, Lloyd and I were in Bangkok, and we were terrified watching this from another country when this mm -hmm. was going on. And, of course, we wanted them to do everything that they possibly could. I think more than than anything is the lack of ba checks and balances and the fact that this was done so unilaterally and the FISA court was just being evaded. Why don't you talk about that? Because I don't think a lot of people, we've talked on this show about the FISA court. We had the Center for Democracy and Freedom come on and talk about it, Jim Dempsey. Mm -hmm. But I, I think, you know, you know this stuff like the back of your hand. And I try and stay up with it. But most people are so busy in their life that they just, it's overwhelming for them to even believe that this would happen or even get into the details of this. Why don't you first explain what the FISA court was and how that was totally evaded and why it wasn't necessary? Sure. I, just to give you a quick backgrounder, um, the, the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was, uh, was passed by Congress in, in 1978. And this was response to the abuses um, of Watergate and also of the, um, uh, the abuses of the Nixon era and, and, and uh, harassment of, and monitoring of Vietnam protesters in the 60s. Um, there was a feeling that there needed to be a judicial check on the presidency uh, to guard against the, the overreaching um, of, of, of presidential power that, that, that uh, the country had seen in the 60s and 70s. So Congress set up a, a secret intelligence court, a very, very powerful court, um, you know, ne never has any public hearings, never has any public records or public documents um, for the purpose of, of issuing um, secret orders, warrants for terrorism and espionage investigations. Um, and that court, um, it, you know, certainly had its critics over the years, but operated um, pretty smoothly for, uh, uh, for the next, um, you know, tw almost 30 years. 
uh, until 9-11. And let's go back and say that the fact that they, as far as I understood, I think that in all the years that it was in existence and working, there were maybe only, I think Jim Dempsey said maybe five times that it was denied. Yeah, there there were only a handful right there. There were something like 30,000 warrants um, that were approved and a handful that were ever rejected, which, of course, led critics to say that this court was really just a rubber stamp for, for the government, that this was um, really just another arm of the executive branch and was not really a check. That, that's always been the criticism of, of the court, that it, that it, that it was a, a judicial check in name only. Um, but but it, was, it was, at least, at least, at least was in paper check. and at least in name, it was a check. Uh, right. and, and there were, um, at the time, 11, 9-11, I believe there were 11 judges who sat on the court all around the country, not all in Washington. Usually one judge at a time uh, would would hear um, a request for an order on a totally on ex parte basis. There, there's never a defendant. There's never an opposing counsel in the room. Um, it's just the government going before um, the judge and saying the, with a thick packet of uh, an affidavit to establish probable cause, um, saying that this is why we believe that, that John Doe or... or Muhammad X um, is is a terrorism suspect, and why we should be able to wiretap their phones or or um, uh, execute a search warrant or other other similar investigative techniques. And Eric, um, wasn't it twenty four seven? Somebody was always available twenty four seven. They could go to the judge's house and and get. Yeah, it there, they there were there were emergency warrants, um, right. and there were even emergency warrants um, after the fact. The the law um, allowed the the Justice Department and the executive branch to. Um, to begin uh, a, a wiretap, for instance, in emergency circumstances, and then get approval retroactively 72 hours afterward. And 72 um, hours is a long time. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So they had three days to basically put together the reasons after the fact to say this is why we thought that this person was, was trouble, and this is why we thought there was an emergency in the making, and, and, and uh, went up on a wiretap. Right. So, so this is, you know, it was not a system without without its kinks. There, there had been numerous changes in the law over the years, um, and and Congress had amended the law, um, you know, upwards of fifty times in the first twenty five years or so that FISA was in existence. Um, but uh, after nine eleven, um, there there was a feeling uh, within the White House, especially by Vice President Cheney and his aides, that uh, FISA had become an impediment uh, to being able to act quickly and agilely enough to going after uh, terrorist suspects. And now, was there any evidence that they couldn't act that quickly? Was there? Um, not really. There's certainly a lot of evidence on the other side that, that um, for instance, in the Millennium bombing plot I talk about in the book in 2000, um, which involved you all in, in, in Los Angeles, that was uh, Ahmed Rassam who crossed over the Canadian border and was um, ultimately, trying to, to detonate a bomb at LAX, um, they're able to get get uh, FISA orders on him from Seattle to Washington to Canada uh, in a matter of minutes. Um, and, and there was there were lots of instances where, in that emergency uh, on that emergency basis, FISA orders uh, worked very well and very quickly um, as designed. Um, but uh, but there was this feeling within the White House that uh, it did not it did not uh, act quickly enough. And I think there was also a feeling this this is not publicly acknowledged. But but um, the theory that I lay out in the book is that the system was also not designed to use the sort of data mining techniques that the intelligence community wanted to be able to use. Um, in other words, when 
the intelligence community is using um, you know highly sophisticated uh, algorithms, for instance, to to, to uh, pour data into a system with your travel habits and and uh, phone numbers and email addresses and and other bits of data, and spit out um, possible suspects and patterns. The, the, that's not that doesn't fit the traditional notion of what a court is going to use to approve a warrant. That's because they might that, ask you, how did you get that yeah, first? That, that, that's yeah, just, that's just not how the courts work. That's right. not how the courts establish probable cause. And, and so I think that was really the, the real reason, oh. um, it's my view, that, that why they believed that they had to work around that system um, as much as the, you know, the, the, the speed or, or as anything. Um, and uh, they, they wanted the, the, the NSA, the National Security Agency, uh, to have a, a much broader role. The NSA historically, especially in that post-Watergate period, um, had been limited to foreign intelligence. That was its business, was, was, um, was collecting foreign intelligence. And anyone who goes to work for the NSA will tell you that's the first thing that's drummed into them from day one of their training is that they do not target Americans. Right. Uh, that's the job of the FBI. Once you hit U.S. soil, the, the NSA is in the foreign intelligence business. Uh, and it was the belief of, of Cheney and, and uh, his inner circle, um, including, uh, including Mike Hayden, General Hayden, who was then the director of the NSA, and George Tenet, who was then director of the CIA, that uh, if the U.S. was going to stop the terrorist attack, they needed to essentially free up the NSA to do that. This, this was their argument, you know, and I, and I present their, their view right. at face value. People can make their own judgments about uh, you know, their motives or anything like that. Um, that led uh, President Bush himself to approve very soon after 9-11, just a matter of, of uh, uh, less than four weeks later, um, the first in a series of executive orders that um, uh, authorized the NSA to begin collecting, uh, doing wiretaps on Americans and their international communications um, coming to or from um, the U.S. to overseas, and also emails to and from international locations without court orders, without going through the FISA court, which is a huge, um, huge sea change in, in the way the government worked, uh, both in the role of the NSA and also in this end run that they were doing around the FISA court. And what you talked about in your book is that it was very, very secret. Only a handful of people even knew about this besides the NSA, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think that really hurt them because um, it, it quickly became known. It, you know, it, took, it took four years for the story to come out publicly, but it took a matter of uh, about 12 hours, as I tell in the book, for other people in the government who didn't know about this program to, to learn that something was up because this was simply too big and too hot to keep, to keep under control. And, and people who, who didn't know what the president authorized within, I'm talking about within the intelligence community at the NSA and the FBI and the Justice Department, soon came to realize just through the course of their day-to-day -day business, these are very senior people, that something was going on that was um, radically different than the day before and, and um, involving the NSA and that this was, um, was causing incredible nervousness from um, literally days of its inception. Uh, and um, at the FBI, for instance, I tell the story of you know the FBI director having to put out this firestorm among his among his aides who said well, what what the hell is going on here? What's the NSA right. doing collecting uh, intelligence on Americans? And, and the FBI director had to assure his people that 
that this had been approved <clears throat> at the highest levels, meaning the president himself. Uh, and there were other situations where um, people at the Justice Department, including the Deputy Attorney General, the number two there, again, aware that something was going on, but they weren't sure what, re- refused to sign off on, on parts of this that, that um, uh, kind of overlapped with their jurisdiction. Um, you know, the, the belief was that if I don't know what this is and if I, if I can't certify it, this is legal, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And right. people ran the other way from it. Right, right. Although, you know, and then looking at the other side of it, at that time that was such a scary time, and it must have been even scarier for you living in Washington in that area. But if you could imagine being the president of the United States and having all this pressure and saying, I ne- we're never going to have another 9-11 and do everything you can so we can't. And then all of a sudden he, he realizes about this vast database and this incredible technology that never was available to presidents before. It was like, okay, let's do it. I don't give a damn, right? I mean, oh, absolutely, and, 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 and I, I can understand yeah. that. Yeah, and I go out of my way. I mean, and I and I hope I and you do see it in the book in trying yeah. to present both sides of that and, and yes. not cast judgments on this. Is you know, there are a lot of people on the left who see this as you know this horrible power grab and Dick Cheney is Darth Vader. You, you know, yeah. The, the, yeah. these yeah. were these were. Um, These were crazy times, times. yeah, Yeah, crazy times. Um, And, you know, there were missteps, certainly, by the administration. I think that they would acknowledge now that it could have been handled differently. I think their motives were were, were probably in the right place. Right. They weren't just trying to, they weren't like a Hugo Chavez or something who's who's out there doing that. I I mean, they were really scared. They were doing what they could do. Yeah, I mean, there are any number of people on the left who believe that, that, you know, Dick Cheney was sort of just waiting for a 9-11 to, to... uh, you know, grab a hold of the White House. I don't buy into that idea. No, no. I mean, I I think about me, and, and when when an emergency happens in your family, you do what you think you have to do. You do the most drastic measures to take care of it. But then, I think the bad part came that that later, you know, when you could reflect on that, and when you're looking at the Patriot Act again, and when you're looking at things a little bit later, and you're saying, wait a minute, okay. We're trying to do all this to protect democracy, but what are we doing? We're destroying our democracy at the same time. I think, you know, the, the, the hindsight should at least give you some uh, ways to look at, okay, now how do we bring this back into balance? Even though we still need to fight terrorism, how do we bring this back? Right. I think where where they went off course was was um, you know with this incredible and in many ways unnecessary secrecy even within the executive branch, and, and in the failure to um, to 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 engage in any congressional oversight. Um, Cheney insisted that only at first only four members of Congress and then only eight members of Congress um, could know about this. That they could not consult their own lawyers on their staff. They couldn't take notes. They couldn't really right. ask questions. Um, so the full intelligence committees, which normally would have been briefed on a program like this, were, were shut out of it, which in itself may have been a violation of the law. Exactly. Um, and, and I think that, that that really hurt them in the end. Yeah. They, they, how many people are on the Foreign Intelligence Committee? Uh, the, the Intelligence Committees um, are its probably a total in both houses of, oh, I would guess about 30 or 40 at that right. time. Right. And they only told about eight, right? Yes. Yeah. So that must have been terrible pressure on those people as well. Right, right. And, you know, after my book came out, I tell a story involving Jane Harmon, yes. um, your, your California <laughs> yes. congresswoman, right. um, that I guess she thought didn't put her in the most favorable light as, as, as a supporter of the program. Um, and, and after my book came out, she uh, put out a statement saying that, that she was not even aware that, that the 
program involved these legal issues, that no one had asked about the legality of the program, um, which I think tells you something about the, the nature of these briefings. Right, right. You know, when we talk about transparency and secrecy versus the balance of power, I think what sometimes it made sense to me about secrecy and not having everything transparent, I can understand that, but not to have the checks and balances, not to give the courts overview, not to give Congress overview. That's the whole reason why we have this, you know, three-level government, right? We have the executive branch, and they're supposed to be, you know, everybody's supposed to look over each other's shoulders. I think that was the scariest part, is that those parts were, you know, even though if you're going to have something secret, you still have to have that checks and balances. Right, right. And that, that's what really freaked me. I had to. I wanted to ask you: Were you ever fearful for your own, you know, uh, privacy? Did you feel like you were being wiretapped? Did you feel like you were being investigated? You were being followed at any time when they found out that you did this story? Well, I mean, certainly worry about that. But once the story became public and, and the FBI opened uh, an investigation, uh, a leak investigation into this. Um, to find out the sources, yeah, that, that certainly become became a concern. Were you ever fearful for your life? No, I I, I wouldn't go that far. Maybe I should have been, but <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> yes, we're talking with a, a wonderful journalist, a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for um, his investigation into the NSA spying. We're speaking with Eric Lischblau, who is a New York Times writer, a journalist, who also was a Los Angeles Times journalist, and he is the author of this compelling and very exciting, hardly could put it down, uh, Bush that a uh, red book that I read but, uh, called Bush's Law: The Remaking of American Justice. And we are sitting here at the University of California, Irvine, and I'm hoping that the students will pick this up and start to read it and start to understand a little bit more about what's really going on, because I think they're probably so busy studying that at least, you know, in the summer months, they can read this book and and have some intellectual exercises. So let me ask you something. In your book, you talk about the dramatic standoff at John Ashcroft's bedside when he was in the hospital after that pancreatic surgery. Right. That... I was at the edge of my seat reading that. I didn't see the, the C-SPAN when um, when this was all revealed. Why don't you tell us about that? And that's going to pe- get people to want to read your book even more. Sure, sure. Yeah, that, that was um, kind of the Hollywood moment of, of all this. Uh, right. When um, in uh, March of 2004, the Attorney General, John, John Ashcroft at the time, was hospitalized uh, with uh, a gallbladder surgery. Uh, it was in very serious shape. It was on, on um, uh, you know, it was was uh, on, on critical condition at one point uh, at a local Washington hospital, uh, and it was right at that point over those few weeks when uh, his aides were beginning to to really raise a lot of internal concerns about the legality of the NSA program, um, particularly in the, the, the data mining elements of it. Uh, and and his pres- deputy, wasn't his deputy, is it Comey? Is that uh, it, J- James Comey, right, Comey. was, was uh-huh. the deputy attorney general, right, had authorized the <coughs> Office of Legal Counsel to take another another look at the whole program, and the head of that office, a, a, a lawyer by the name of Jack Goldsmith, um, uh, had written um, a, uh, a second legal opinion, which was beginning to repudiate some of the earlier elements um, authorizing the program. So the you know the legal foundations were starting to, to crumble around the program here in early 2004, uh, and 
and Ashcroft's aides were signaling that they did not think that that the Justice Department should sign off on the program. Uh, and the way that that worked was that the, the initial uh, uh, setup framework for the program that Bush had had used was to have the attorney general every 45 days certify the legality of this this sort of extra legal um, program. Uh, and you that, said that was their downfall, even yeah, though. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> boy, he came to regret that, yeah. Um, and, uh, Thank Ashcroft, God they did that. Yes. Yeah, they, they needed, the, the, the clock was ticking, and they needed that authorization just as Ashcroft was, was going in the hospital. Um, and his deputy, uh, James Comey, was the acting attorney general and refused to, to sign off at it and told the White House as much, uh, told Cheney and, and Andy Card and Alberto Gonzalez, who was in the White House counsel, and, and really infuriated the White House and, and you know, put himself in, in a lot of... Um, uh, harm's way yeah. pro- professionally as a result, um, and uh, the the White House, Alberto Gonzalez and, and uh, Andy Card, then decided they were not going to accept that answer and um, uh, <laughs> called over to the uh, to the hospital. It's not clear who answered the phone. Whether it was either Mrs. Ashcroft or Ashcroft's chief of staff, and wanted to have a a private visit with the attorney general. And it soon became very clear that what they wanted was to get his signature on this piece of paper. Uh, and Ashcroft's deputy got, got word of this. Um, and It was like ju- 11 o'clock at night, too. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> it, it, he was leaving the office and had his security detail um, race over to the hospital, to George Washington Hospital, with, with sirens bla- blaring <laughs> to try and beat the White House over there. And, right. and, and he did beat them. And, and, t- and Runs up the stairs. Racing up the stairs. He's a big man. He's about six foot eight. Raced up the stairs uh, to, to beat them up there. Um, and then his... Uh, uh, is sitting there in the dark by Ashcroft as as Alberto Gonzalez, the White House Counsel, and Andy Carr, the, the Chief of Staff, finally get there, and uh, this very very tense standoff. I, I sort of compare it to a scene out of The Godfather. Yes, uh, open the door, the, and there they're sitting there yeah, they're, in the dark. Yeah, and and uh, you know the president has come to with with urgent business, um, <laughs> and they make their intentions known, and and Ashcroft, who's been deathly ill. Um, and he's probably uh, some, drugged up, right? Yeah, very drugged up. Yeah, somehow manages the strength, as 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 it was told later, to lift his head off the pillow and and say that his aides have advised him that he should not sign this piece of paper. And besides, the acting attorney general is sitting right over there, and so they should be asking him. Right. And so Andy Card and Alberto Gonzalez uh, leave uh, with with. Uh, without the signature on the piece of paper, and, and for good measure, Mrs. Ashcroft uh, <laughs> sticks her tongue out right. at them as, as they're leaving. Right. Um, and this led to basically a, a full-scale rebellion at the Justice Department, um, where you had the, the resignations threatened by about 20 senior officials, including Ashcroft and Comey. Wow. And Bush himself had to intervene to sort of keep the peace and, and make some changes in the program. We're still not sure exactly what, but to keep everyone in board and to keep keep the lid on this uh, uh, on this controversy. Um, and uh, you know, we we first heard about this story after uh, our original story broke. It was a couple of weeks later, and and um, it uh, you know was sort of remarkable in 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 showing just how personal this had all gotten. You know, just the feuding internally within within the White House and the administration over over this program. Right. And then you talked about how on C-SPAN, Comey told the whole story, and everybody was sitting there with their mouths open in Congress. Right, right. Yeah, it was, it was a remarkable moment in Congress, yeah. 
I think they're going to have to make a movie. Have they talked to you about making a movie of this like they did with all the president's men? Yeah, anything? yeah. Well, there's, there has been some talk of that, but yeah, that, that oh, would be fun. Wow. Won't that be fun? Who's going to play you? Oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, Al Pacino? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Brad Pitt. <laughs> oh, Brad Pitt, that's who you want. Okay. <laughs> Very cute. Now, see, did I ask you a question that no one's asked you? There you go. You, see, you, you I did. told that's you. The first. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I was... I was um, so surprised. You know, Ashcroft had, I didn't think much of him, you know, but of course I'm on the other side of the country and I don't know exactly what's going on, but I didn't think much of him, but I really thought when he did that in the hospital when he was so sick, I was really impressed that he would do that. Yeah, it, it, it was a, you know, a renaissance of sorts. So certainly um, public relations-wise, it, it, it certainly helped his image. I mean, he had been seen as so closely aligned with, with the White House, but there were a couple of instances um, that came out only after he left office, both involving the NSA program and also interrogation tactics, where where he was, um, you know, he was made to look, uh, you know, more independent than than many people had given him credit for. Right, but um, he had and that, that may have as much to do with sort of protecting his own turf as standing up for for you know constitutional principles. That you, you could probably debate that all day long. Right, right. So what was his downfall? Uh, his downfall was, uh, I, I think, just being too much, too independent and too much of a grandstander in the eyes of the White House. He was too much of a politician. You know, I remember Ashcroft had himself had run for president briefly against Bush in, in 98 um, and you know, was a career politician who was always used to being center stage. And there was just time after time during his time as attorney general when he would take it a half step too far in terms in terms of turning the camera on himself. Um, you may remember yes. the case of the, the the dirty bomber Jose Padilla right. um, when Ashcroft announced um, you know to to uh, this eerie glow in Mo- live from Moscow that Jose Padilla was planning to detonate a, a dirty bomb on the streets of Chicago. Uh, and, and I tell the story about uh, these private phone calls in the White House. Uh, profanity-laced calls with, you know, to the effect of what the heck is Ashcroft doing? Yes. Uh, and, and there was just <laughs> scene after scene of that where um, the the substance may not have been all that different from the White House, but the message was seen as, as just too independent and, 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 uh, and ratcheting things up too much. Yeah. Right, inflammatory uh, and not, yeah. even being, not even being proven. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although, you know, you, the, the other side of that, that case is that uh, the White House um, really used that to its own advantage because it allowed them to to, to uh, use Ashcroft as kind of the bad cop while ratcheting things up publicly and and stirring a lot of fears, you know, about right. color-coded threat alerts and dirty bombers and things like that. And the White House was able to say, oh, that's that's just the Attorney General, John Ashcroft, John being John, while never quite cutting him off. Right, and uh, that so also gave them the the, gave uh, them the rationalization for what yeah. they were doing. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Um, what about Gonzalez? Boy, you you really went into your book at, at great length about. <laughs> oh, he oh, he thank just you. couldn't get it right, and, and it was it was you know I I mean he was almost I was, you know what you talked about it with him you know really was what I had been feeling about him from afar, but what. What a mess, huh? What a mess. He really didn't have the savvy to do what 
what he was asked to do. Yeah, I mean, just at a basic competence level. Yes. Um, I think there were real questions about, about Gonzalez um, and, and certainly, you know, his independence, which, which was his, um, you know, his canard from, from even before the, the day he took the job, you know, was was obviously his his downfall. Um, exact you opposite know, it, of, it, of Ashcroft. Yeah, yeah. I mean, where it just uh, became very clear that he was in not just in lockstep with the White House, but but you know was just carrying out their orders. And the Justice Department, you know, historically has had some measure of of, of independence, usually a lot of independence. Um, you know, those times when it hasn't, like in, in Watergate and the Saturday Night Massacre, um, you know, it leads to to historic problems um, right. and. Uh, you know that's what we saw with Gonzalez with the U.S. attorney scandal, with the firing of the of the eight prosecutors, um, and, and a range of other policies on torture and interrogations, um, and, and the NSA program. Those all just kind of joined together to um, to paint him as um, the uh, as the White House's man at the Justice Department, which was unacceptable to a lot of people. Right, right. He even got his own Republican Party just just furious at him when he right, says, I right. don't remember, I don't remember. I was ready to give him some ginkle biloba. You know, <laughs> he couldn't <laughs> right. remember anything. And, right. yeah, that whole thing with the federal prosecutors, that was just really strange. And I, I didn't know that Harriet Mears is the one that wanted to actually fire them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was her, her idea at first to get rid of all 94, and, <laughs> and there were cooler heads in the room, I, I guess, relatively speaking, at least. Um, well, thank goodness that that, she didn't get to be a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, yeah, she was nominated and then withdrawn. Yeah, um, <laughs> but they at least prevailed and said we we don't think that would would play well <laughs> to to get rid of all of them at once. Um, but uh, they got rid of enough to to you know cause a, a major major scandal. Wow. Yeah, I know because Diane Feinstein from California was questioning. You know, yeah, what is Feinstein, this all about? Yeah, Feinstein was the one who really first focused attention on that. Um, to to her credit, I mean, it it had almost gone unnoticed, which was, which was the whole plan. I mean, there was clearly a plan that was months in the making here to to make this seem as if it was not a coordinated firing, as if these were just sort of random events, and that almost succeeded because for for probably three or four weeks. Um, no one really connected, no one even realized, first of all, these people have been forced out, and no one connected one to the other situation in, in San Diego with Carol Lamb to, to Seattle to, to, to New Mexico. And it was Feinstein who really first started asking questions of Gonzalez and others and, and put that together. Right, and I think that the real interesting part was, you know, for a long time when this first happened, it was like, okay, we're just you know, going to have a change of the guard. And then they tried to say that these people had poor evaluations, and that's when everybody was trying to protect their own reputation. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, that, I had poor performance. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's in the liberal I, mean, I think they probably, the Justice Department probably could have ridden out the scandal had it not been for, for exactly what you're saying, the, the remarks by Paul McNulty, who was then Gonzalez's top deputy, Saying that these people were basically fired for cause, for because of for yeah. poor evaluations, and up until that point, um, almost all of the eight had 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 kept silent and sort of been the loyal troopers and just sort of gone about their business and right. went to look for jobs and figure, okay, that that's point, politics now. I'll just go in in right, house. Yeah. Right. And at that point, um, uh, you know, D- D- uh, David Iglesias and 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 most of the others began defending themselves. They, they right. felt as if they had been personally attacked, and and that's when really the wheels came off the bus. 
Right, right. You know, I remember reading in your book, and I want to say your book again. I'm talking, I better introduce you again. Some people who are driving by will hear this. Uh, we're speaking with Eric Lischblau, who is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, his new book, which is fascinating. I love it. Red, white, and blue with this big star here. <laughs> Bush's Law, the Remaking of American Justice. It's uh, very compelling. But I remember when I was reading in your book, you were you were concerned about, after you visited Judy Miller in prison, when she failed to reveal her sources, uh, you know, under subpoena, and what is it, Valerie Plame case, right? Right. Um, and then you talked, like, you got a little bit worried, like, oh, my goodness, are they going to come after me? Right, right. Yeah, that was before the NSA story had even run. And, and <laughs> you know, you could almost see where this might lead you. We didn't mm-hmm. know at that point. But, um, you know, the sad thing is that the legal protections for reporters are obviously um, eroding pretty quickly in Washington. And, and uh, you know, uh, a lot of people, more than we'd like to count, have found themselves in that situation lately. Yeah. So... I mean, did you have nightmares about that? Yeah, not quite, not quite nightmares, but but maybe some restless sleep. <laughs> so. Let's talk a little bit about the financial spying. This one was uh, pretty amazing. That tell people about SWIFT, that that banking consortium in Brussels. You know, most people don't even know about that. Right. This was it was kind of the big follow up to the NSA story, um, and uh, it had to do with a, uh, uh, as you say, a, a, a consortium in Belgium that. Um, is really kind of the nerve center of the entire banking industry. It's it's a banking cooperative that routes virtually all the financial transactions in the world. Um, when you uh, make a transaction in ATM or take money out of out of uh, your account or um, uh, send it from bank to bank, it, it's uh, it is routed normally through uh, through SWIFT. Um, and what what we found out was that uh, there was another um, secret program that that the government had started right after 9/11 <clears throat> that allowed them, in in the hopes of tracing terrorist financing, uh, to um, basically gather up all of the international uh, financial transactions, um, uh, hundreds of thousands and, and millions at a time, through this Belgium cooperative, um, and this was a, an operation that. Um, raised similar questions to the NSA operation in a lot of ways. It, it um, in U.S. law was sort of in a gray area because financial privacy laws in the U.S. are, are, are not quite as strong as in other areas. In in Europe, it seemed to be clearly crossing the line. In fact, as after a story came out, has <coughs> since been found to be <coughs> excuse me illegal by um, a number of European bodies and regulators, and they've had to make all sorts of changes in the program. Right. Right. So um, how did you learn about it? Uh, you know, again, it was just a matter of, of talking to a lot of people who, um, you know, on the inside who were, um, uh, who were involved in, in the war on terror and, and, and just trying to follow leads. Um, and, and certainly the uh, terrorist financing front was equally important as the, um, you know, the eavesdropping front. Uh, and this was... A tool that, um, again, was understandable in a lot of ways, but um, was raised raised similar questions about the effectiveness, as did the NSA program. Um, there was an awful lot of information that was gathered. In fact, much more information, millions and millions of transactions, um, with arguable payback and and obviously legal concerns that came with it. 
You know, I remember back then when they said we have to follow the money. They had money. How did sure. they get their, their pilot license? How did they get their apartments, right. their credit cards? And, you know, when, when they talked about that, I thought, well, that's why they have this SARS, you know, that if you go to the bank and you take right. $5,000 or $10,000 or you transfer money, that they have an investigation. So right. I, I really thought before you made this all uh, public about SWIFT, I really thought that they were doing that. And and that I thought, well, we all know about that, you know. Right, right. Yeah, th- those are the suspicious activity reports, and right. there was an effort in Congress to uh, to mandate that the banks turn over pretty much exactly what they were getting from SWIFT. That that effort had not moved quickly enough, though, for the White House's liking. Oh. Um, and you know, once again, it was a case of not wanting to wait for or or not. Uh, wanted to take the chance of Congress um, not approving something. Right. Um, so once again, they went ahead on their own, and, and again, uh, they did so without informing Congress, without going through the normal oversight. Um, you know, I tell the story in the book of, of um, uh, the when it became clear that we were going to run the story, the Treasury Department calling in several of the, the banking committee chairmen to tell them about this program, and, and Barney Frank, among others, was... Um, quite quite uh, perplexed and, and upset to, to learn that he was basically being told something only because it was about to be in the New York Times. Right, he right. said, you know, go take a walk. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to listen to this. Yeah, I remember when you had that. So. He says, call me back when you're going to tell me something that's not going to be in right, the exactly, Times. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You're a close reader. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, I did read the book. I know. I can tell. Uh, I can yeah. tell. You're getting all the good stories out of me. They don't have yeah. to buy it now. <laughs> No, yeah. they do have to buy it because they do. there's, there's still mean, lots of good stuff. Yeah, it took me. No, it's pretty thick, but I mean, it's really it's fascinating. It's easy reading because it's light. It's fun, actually. I mean, it's it's scary though. I was so shocked. You know, how could I be shocked? I grew up in the '60s and I know all this stuff. I mean, I went through the Nixon era, but I I still was shocked that this kind of stuff was going on. What shocked you? Oh, um, you know, I guess I guess everything and nothing. You know, it's it was such a uh, you know last seven years has been such a remarkable time in Washington to be a reporter, um, you know, that that nothing phases you anymore, but at the same time, you you, you, know, you won't be surprised if, if you learn that there was a whole other controversy tomorrow that we had no clue about. Um, right. <laughs> you know, just when you think you've, you've figured it all out, then another one, there's another one around the corner. I mean, it's just, you know, things were changing so quickly, and the government was, was forced to respond uh, in such dramatic ways after 9-11 um, that, you know, you have, you just have overwhelming amounts of, of, of tension within the system. You know, the system isn't sort of built to, to work this way. Yeah, yeah. You know what I thought was interesting, and I could just, I was trying to imagine what that would have been like when you were talking about how, when you had to keep everything secret about that, but you knew about the NSA spying, but then they had those, um, the Patriot Act, they were going to, you know, reauthorize the Patriot Act. Right. And you're sitting there like, what is this, a joke? I don't even yeah, want to, exactly. you know, and then you said you went to your editors and said, do I really have to do this? This is just like so disgusting and frustrating. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it was like the, knowing about this 800-pound gorilla in the room with the, with the NSA wiretapping program. And then, and then you're supposed Congress to cover the Patriot Act. Yeah, the, the little little minutia. So, that, 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 yeah, that was a little frustrating. I know, because here they're talking about, you know, the the extensive presidential powers of the patriarch and you're sitting there thinking you got to be kidding me right right exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> but they wouldn't let you off the case so that must have been tough it, it was it was yeah but it you know it all worked out in the end <laughs> you know Luckily. 
And you talk about, uh, and I thought about this, about how many, you know, blogger journalists there are, you know, and everybody's telling me I need to have a blog, et cetera. And I'm thinking about all the bloggers, blogger journalists can write anything that they want. They don't have to get approval by any editors. And what do you think about that? You know, that whole dichotomy between the reputable papers like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and then you've got the bloggers out there. What is? What do you think about that? Well, you know, on the one hand, it, it, it keeps us on our toes. I mean, there have been you know any, any number of stories that the you know, that the mainstream media has um, you know maybe overlooked or, or not given the prominence that it should have that the, the the bloggers have really keyed in on, and and that's um, kind of forced the rest of us to to double back on it, and and that's certainly a healthy thing. I mean, that's happened uh, you know a bunch of cases. The, Strom Thurmond's birthday party with Trent Lott and uh, the Dan Rather uh, situation. You know, there are a bunch of cases like that. But, you know, the flip side of that is that there's a lot of kind of unverified rumor out there. And, and you have to, it's tough to figure out which is which. Right, right. At least you, you're supposed to be checking your sources. And, right. You know, it's supposed to be reputable. Yeah. So do you read a lot of blogs? Uh, you know, some, not not a lot. You know, I figure if if something is uh, is good enough, I'll, I'll hear about it eventually. But I find that there's just sort of too much noise out there to to read to read a lot of them. Oh, I know. Yeah. How did the experience that you and your editors had? How did that really change you? You know that you learned that they were they were basically lying to you. Okay. And they the the administration. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So what impact did that have on on you as a writer and as the on New York Times as well? Um, you know, I I think it's made us all more skeptical. Uh, you know, I think after 9-11, there was you know, a tendency uh, among all the media, and I talk about this in the book, too, to, um, you know, maybe for, forget the uh, kind of skepticism that we're, that we're kind of grounded in. Um, and, uh, you know, we're all sort of chasing the next big attack and, and the next big threat and not asking a lot of the questions that we would normally ask. And, and I think that... Because you didn't want to look unpatriotic? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think there was there was some of that. I mean, that may not have been the, the, the stated motive. We may not have been aware of it, but I think that was just, you, you know, it's part of the national mood, you know. The, the, the media reflects the, the national mood as much as anything. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the we began to see a lot of stories around 2004 where the media kind of got its grounding back. And, and um, uh, even before the NSA story, the uh, stories out of, out of Abu Ghraib and stories about Guantanamo and, and um, uh, interrogation tactics. And, and, you know, it became acceptable for the media again to sort of ask those tough questions. Right, right. Let me ask you something. You know, when I see Bush on TV, and I've never met him, um, he seems very personable. You know, he's got a nice family. Um, what Was it Cheney? You know, like you say, that Cheney's the Darth Vader. I mean, who was really pushing all this? Do you think it was Cheney? Do you think it was Bush? I mean, what do you think it was coming from? What it's coming from now, you know, the untrustworthiness. Not the beginning, because I think the beginning everybody rightfully had a right to be scared and do what they needed to do. Right. But afterwards, the, the kind of cover-up stuff. Do you think that was Bush or was it his, his gang? Well, I, I think certainly the, uh, I don't know if I'd use the word cover-up, I think certainly the, the secrecy part of it comes from Cheney um, and, and, and his advisors. Uh, that that um, there's you know case after case uh, some of which I talk about in the book where um, 
you know, the, the distrust of Congress and the media really just kind of bleeds out of the vice president's office, and that, you know, infected the whole rest of the White House. And it was also certainly Cheney's office that, that was, and Cheney himself, who was orchestrating the NSA program. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. He, he was the one that set that in motion. He, he had a better uh, feel for what the executive branch was, was capable of than, than did Bush. Uh, and, and he had a vision of that that, um, uh, that went back to his days in the Ford White House. You know, he, he felt that, um, you know, whereas most people thought that the reforms after Watergate uh, in, in sort of restoring checks and balances uh, to guard against the, the Watergates and the Nixon abuses were a good thing, he, he thought that they had, had um, uh, you know, dangerously uh, eroded the power of the presidency. Mm. And, and so he um, wanted to build that back up clearly even before 9-11. Um, again, I, I don't, as I was saying earlier, I don't necessarily see that as, as uh, you know, waiting for 9-11 to happen or, no, or exploring no, no. that, but but I, but I think that it was clearly, it, as I say in the book, it kind of dovetailed with his vision of a of an emasculated presidency, and, and um, he was the one who, who saw the need uh, for, the, for the White House to reassert its role as commander-in-chief. Yeah, see, because my, my impression from afar was that, you know, Bush was just looking to his advisors and, you know, said pretty much not be a detail man, just, you know. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a, a president who um, leads by gut. Uh, you know, yeah. I tell the story in, in the book of, of uh, during one of the terrorist flare-ups in 2004 when they were, um, uh, there was concern about planes coming from Europe uh, that might be um, part of a terrorist plot. It turned out to be focus turned out not to be part of a terrorist plot, but, um, you know, the intelligence is coming in from the CIA and the NSA, and ultimately, um, you know, Bush made the decision on what to do and uh, by asking his aides uh, the question in, in, in uh, SIOC in the Situation Room, you know, if, if that were your son or daughter, would you, would you let him get on that plane? Right. Um, and it's that kind of sort of emotional gut level response. He then ordered the planes grounded. Yes. Um, you know, as much based on sort of gut as on, um, you know, the raw intelligence. Well, Lloyd is telling me that we are out of time now. Do you believe that? It went uh, so quick? It flew. It flew. I told you, you are so wonderful, Eric. I would love to have you back on again, especially when you write your next book. And oh, I'll, all right. You got and, it. And I have to keep following you in the New York Times. I have to I have to read it online because it's too expensive to, to buy a $5 paper here. Oh, I hate to but, hear that. Well, <laughs> we, need, we need to keep the print circulation up, too. I know, but I'm too far. Anyway, you are really wonderful. Thank you for all the time and all the great work that you do. Please keep up this great work. Well, thank you. you for having me. Yes, and we'll we'll see you next time soon. Okay. Okay, bye. You've, bye You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Minervine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, your host. Please join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. and also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests, download podcasts, listen to archive interviews, even write us an email. Thank you so much for joining us. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.